The Carleton College Convocation Program is a weekly lecture series that brings fresh insights and perspectives from experts in a variety of fields. The program has a rich history dating back several decades. The selected convocation speakers assist the liberal arts mission of centering thoughtful conversations within education and beyond. Hello. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Shahi Jaffer, and I am a junior majoring in economics with a minor in gender, women, and sexuality studies. Besides my academic pursuits, uh, I am actively involved with various cultural organizations on campus, and I currently serve as the board member of Mosaic, which is the South Asian Interests Club on campus. Today, I'm thrilled to announce uh, and had the opportunity to introduce the guest convoy speaker, Arjun Singh Sethi, um, who is someone I personally admire. Arjun is a community activist, a civil rights, civil rights lawyer, a writer based in Washington, DC. His work primarily, primarily focuses on supporting and working um, closely with Muslim, Arab, South Asian, and Sikh communities. He's an expert in areas such as policing, the war on terror, radical and religious profiling. SETI also provides guidance to foundations and nonprofits on organizing rapid response efforts, advocacy campaigns, and public policy. He actively engages in issues related to domestic and international surveillance, as well as pre-arrest encounters between civilians and the police, which include non-consensual stops, uh, policing, location trafficking, uh, location tracking, biometric data collection, and countering violent extremist programs. Urgent's writing have been featured in numerous international and national publications, including CNN, The Guardian, Politico, The USA Today, The Washington Post. He has been extensively quoted in print, radio, and television, including The New York Times. Um, after the 2016 presidential elections, Urgent traveled across the country meeting and documenting uh, experiences of individuals who faced hate in connection with the election. Their stories, told in their own words, are compiled in his book, American Hate, Survivors Speak Out. Currently, Urgent serves uh, as the co-chair of the American Bar Association's National Committee on Homeland Security, Terrorism, and treatment of enemy combatants. He has also acted as a legal observer in various parts of the world. He began his career as a political affairs and legislation, uh, lit lit litigation, sorry, associate at the international law firm of Covington and Burling in Washington, DC, where he representing victims of domestic violence, asylum seekers, national security detainees, and criminal defendants on death rows. On a, final road, on a final note, we are for a very special treat today, and we are truly excited to have the opportunity to hear from someone who has had a significant impact. So without further ado, let us warmly welcome Arjun Singh Sethi to Carleton College. Hi there. Uh, how are you? It's a pleasure to be with you all. Uh, thank you for the generous uh, introduction. Um, I tend to be emphatic, as you will see, and so I will be negotiating how far I need to be from the mic as I move forward with my remarks. Um, thank you to the school for having me. Um, it's really a pleasure to be with you all um, in this gorgeous venue. When I thought a little bit about what I wanted to share with you all, um, I couldn't help but remember May 25th, 2020. Um, it's just a few weeks away from the three-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. And so I really want my remarks today to focus on how to build a 21st century movement. And so I'll start by telling you a little bit about how I reacted when I first heard the news of George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis. Initially, my reaction was one of almost resignation. 
lack of surprise. And I say that because anybody who watches the news, anybody who is studying, following the news of the day, we are always and regularly seeing stories of police violence, police abuse targeting, in particular, black men and women in this country. And so, as terrible as the video was, I said, these are the systems that are in place. And then I caught myself for a second and said, I can't possibly accept that resignation. I can't possibly succumb to that inertia. Because under no circumstance, no matter how ubiquitous it may be, can we ever accept the lynching of a black person or anyone in America. And so that feeling of shock, of anger, and honestly what I consider to be righteous rage took over. And so like so many others, I took to the streets. And for weeks, I was in the streets of DC joining protesters, being a legal observer, and in solidarity with the racial justice movement and black-led organizations uh, in the district. Some of what I saw. I saw police trying to arrest youth who were tagging buildings. Uh, tagging is just a synonym, for example, for graffiti. I saw the DC police impose a curfew where they stopped people basically from leaving their homes at 6 p.m. in Washington, D.C. I saw police, actually this was not police, this I believe was U.S. military, engaged in what I call, and what is known as show of force maneuvers in Chinatown, two blocks from where I live. Meaning they were literally flying helicopters at low altitude and then spinning them higher at such a velocity that they were blowing out the windows of local businesses. Um, some of you may have heard the story of Rahul Dubé. I believe he might have been one of CNN's 100 heroes or on Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. Not that those lists are all the same, um, but he achieved and, and sort of received some fame because I wanna say maybe five nights after the protests uh, began, he basically took in roughly 200 protesters into his home and gave them shelter. That night at 3 a.m., I actually went to the house and gave the young people who had taken refuge in that house and gave Rahul himself legal counsel. And so like so many people, I was inspired. I was motivated. Some people consider to be the summer of 2020 as being one of the largest popular uprisings in American history. And we didn't just see uprisings in the United States. We saw acts and protests of solidarity in Africa, Asia, Europe, and every single continent. And some months later, I recall being at an event similar to this where a young person, like many of you today, asked me, is this a moment or is it a movement? And I remember thinking, I don't know the answer, but I really, really hope it's a movement. And yet here I am, three years later, and my answer to that question is, I think it was more a moment and not a movement. And so I wanna tell you a little bit why I've come to that conclusion and how I think we can actually build a more resilient movement. And just so maybe I'm not alone, um, you know, I'll ask you, and I know we've got staff here as well, we probably have faculty too. How do you all feel? Are you more optimistic today than you were in the summer of 2020? I see some heads going most, uh, I see some heads up and down, which is good. I also see some people's heads going from side to side. Um, 
Do you feel like your families and your communities are stronger today than they were in 2020? Do you feel like we have stronger leadership today than we did then? Maybe the president, perhaps. Um, and so I was thinking, and as I kind of searched, I thought about a trip that I had made um, right before COVID started to Montgomery. Um, just to get a show of hands, how many of you all have actually visited Montgomery and seen the EJI lynching memorial and museum? Anyone raise their hands? So a few, few hands. I would strongly, strongly encourage you all to go. Um, in Montgomery, you will find the lynching memorial um, where Brian Stevenson and others have basically come together um, and done this extraordinary archiving work where they have basically learned um, and documented um, thousands of lynchings that took place, extrajudicial murders uh, that took place in the United States. And there is a, uh, a memorial to each one of them. And you'll also find a museum there called the Legacy Museum, From Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. That through line is very important and it's something that we'll revisit. But what really struck me when I went to Montgomery was the connective tissue that our elders and that the civil rights movement that came before us had. That doesn't mean everything was perfect. It doesn't mean that there wasn't infighting. It doesn't mean that there wasn't controversy. But they had a connective tissue. Does anyone know how long the Montgomery bus boycott was? Right, just so we know, the Montgomery bus boycott, right? This was the boycott uh, in Montgomery where black folks basically decided that rather than suffer the indignity of separate but equal, they were going to protest. Rain or shine, lightning, thunder or sun, they were gonna walk to work. Anyone know? How long was that boycott? Yeah. Three months. Any other guesses? 382 days. Do you think we're capable of a mass action of 382 days today? No. And so what was that connection? And just so you have a little more context, it was not uncommon for black parents to give their young children, younger than some of you today, toothbrushes when they went to school, when they went to protests, with the expectation that they would be held overnight for engaging in civil protests and civil disobedience. That is strength, that is courage, that is conviction, that is bravery, and that is resilience. And so I wanted to learn about that connective tissue. And a couple of things came to mind. One was just sort of culture. Um, and by culture, I mean there was a spirit of community. There was a spirit of gathering, song. Um, I went on, uh, I went visited Montgomery with a group of organizations. Um, there's been large philanthropic support to community organizations such that almost any organization that wants to take their staff to Montgomery, there's funding for that. And so I went with uh, uh, several organizations. And the folks we met down there told us that song, and I know recently you had a convocation where I think you all were, were, were engaging in song of some kind, is that right? Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, I, I was a bit skeptical, but I actually learned and came to realize and appreciate how vitally important culture was and how vitally important song was. Not just historically when you think about the abolitionist era, but also in the context of the civil rights movement. And then finally, faith. Faith was a fundamental anchor that connected people. They weren't getting their marching orders from philanthropic foundations, from nonprofits. They were coming together at churches. 
They were coming together on Sundays, and they were marching out of spirit, out of conviction. And so the point here is not to say that you all need to adopt faith as your anchor. That is not what I am suggesting. But what I am suggesting is that I do think we need a connective tissue in 21st century organizing, in 21st century movement building. And I will also acknowledge that there was a lot of harm that was done then and is still being done by organized faith, specifically with respect to the LGBTQ and trans community, and I recognize that. But what is that connective tissue? Well, first, I will tell you, I believe in the democratization of media. I love the fact that we live in a world where everyone and any, anybody can be a citizen journalist or a public journalist, but I hate to break it to you, the revolution will not be on TikTok. Two, the revolution is not going to come from an ivory tower either, with all due respect to Carleton College. The revolution and change invariably, almost always, comes from bottom up. It comes from the difficult work of building community at this school with your neighbors, with everyone who lives in your dorm, with this community, with Minneapolis, the state, and globally. And so I want to spend the rest of my time talking a little bit about some of the values and some of the agreements that I think can help us build um, and create a more robust foundation for a 21st century organizing movement. Um, I'll start with empathy. You know, it strikes me um, as, it's, it's always struck me as very puzzling how little empathy I sometimes find when I meet people who have grand visions, when I meet people who have bold new ideas. And impatience is fine. Restlessness is fine, right? If you go to Montgomery, you cannot help but feel pained, enraged by the history of this country. I wrote a book called American Hate, Survivors Speak Out. I chose that title very intentionally because the myth of American exceptionalism is so unbelievably strong. America loves to project to the world that we don't have our own troubled history, that we don't have our own human rights violations and atrocity, when in fact, we, as a, we have as troubled of a history as nearly anyone else. You don't believe me? What if I told you that in the 1930s, the Nazis became obsessed with American jurisprudence. Why? Because they looked at our legal system and said, wow, the Americans have figured it out. They've actually created a legal regime called separate but equal that has legally and lawfully disenfranchised an entire community. How do we keep that? How do we do that here? Look at Montgomery. Again, I wrote a book called American Hate. I'm trying to debunk American exceptionalism. And yet, I didn't know that lynchings were so common at the beginning of the 20th century, that's just a little more than 100 years ago, that they would still advertise them in newspapers. That they would auction off body parts that was in this country, in your country, on this soil. And so it is but normal and healthy to experience rage, to have anger. And yet, we have to have empathy. We have to learn to sometimes assume good faith. We have to listen to sometimes understand and not respond. And also know that empathy is actually something, believe it or not, that can be taught and cultivated. And so what do I mean by that? What I mean is, there are neuroscientists who've actually studied 
the minds and brains of Tibetan monks. And guess what? Their brains and minds actually look different when they are listening and when they are talking because they are approaching conversation from a position of empathy. And I will also tell you that even in the context of my own work, American Hate, where I was traveling around the country compiling testimonials of people targeted by hate violence, that project was only possible because of empathy. It wasn't because I went to law school it wasn't because I excelled as an undergraduate, and I hope you're excelling as an undergraduate, but let me tell you, there's many things more important than your grades. Oops, I said it, right? Um, when I write recommendations, I almost never mention a student's grade. Nobody has asked me where I went to school or where I went to law school in 10 years. They care about my skills and my values. And empathy, I think, is amongst the most important. Empathy is what allowed me to speak to the mosque in Victoria that was burned to the ground in 2017. Empathy was what allowed me to speak to the two young women in Portland, Oregon, uh, who almost lost their lives at a white supremacist, only for three upstanders to intervene, and two of them um, ultimately were stabbed to death on, on a max train in Portland, Oregon. Um, empathy is what allowed me to connect to Susan Bro, the mother of Heather Heyer. Um, Heather Heyer was the young woman murdered in, in, in Charlottesville at the Unite the Right rally. In addition to empathy, I'd like to mention humility. And so by humility, I mean understanding that we all have our own biases and that we all have a lot of work to do. Does anyone know what characteristic or what demographic makes you most likely to be bullied in school in America? Does anyone know? What do you think it is? You can just raise your hand or say it. No. Anyone else? Huh? Um, that's it. It's weight. It's weight. Most people don't get that, and they definitely don't get it this early into the conversation, right? Um, and, and they say race, and they say faith, and they say class, and, and you can be bullied, uh, uh, ableism, you can be bullied for all those reasons. And yet, weight is the characteristic that makes you most likely to be bullied in school in America. And so I say that because we all have biases. And, and at some point, and I don't know when this happened, but calling something racist, calling something biased, calling something ableist, Islamophobic, ended up being the end of the conversation rather than the beginning of the conversation. If we start with the assumption that we all have biases, that we all have lots of work to do, it's going to fundamentally change how we interact and deal with others. You know, one space where I think we need, where I, I, will, I will sort of phrase it this way, I feel like I have been able to add value and I have been a part of conversations that have been hobbling, is conversations around abolition. And so, in spirit, I'm absolutely an abolitionist. What do I mean by that? What I mean is the United States is the carceral capital of the world. The United States is home to 5% of the world's total population, but incarcerates 25% of the world's total prison population. The United States criminal justice system is avowedly and explicitly racist. And we've basically decided to use a hammer to solve any perceived social ill in America, whether that be substance abuse, drug addiction, being unhoused, uh, mental illness, whatever it is. And so we do absolutely need to reimagine 
our incarceration system. And we need leadership, thought leadership, on how to do that. And yet, it's hard because we can't get there overnight. These systems have been entrenched and been in place for a very long time. And so I've been part of difficult conversations where thought leaders will sometimes speak down to survivors who were on the front lines, who've lost loved ones to hate violence, whose houses of worship have been desecrated or burned to the ground because of hate violence, who haven't truly bought in to the abolitionist future. And so part of the project is being humble. Part of the project is building alongside them, centering those who are most impacted, and recognizing that we need an interdisciplinary approach. So I'll give you a concrete example. One of the most difficult and fascinating conversations that I've had in the last several years was with a group of small business owners in San Francisco. And that group of business owners came to me and said, we want to support the recall of Chesa Boudin. And he's a progressive prosecutor who ultimately was recalled. And a lot of people are telling us we shouldn't because he cares about our community. I'm speaking to a group of diverse business owners. And yet, crime is up. Our businesses are being vandalized. People are defecating outside our businesses. And so what do we do? No one will listen to us. No one will help us. And I couldn't help but sympathize with these small business owners. Should they have to internalize the externalities of these policies? Right? They're bearing disproportionate cost. And so, I didn't have a good response, but as I've thought more about it, I've come to realize that the answer, partly, would have been for someone to compensate them. And guess what? That's not that atypical. The government does that all the time, don't they? Doesn't the government subsidize businesses if they're going to uh, uh, settle or, 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 or lay their roots in an underdeveloped area, right? After 9-11, didn't the government say, we're going to subsidize uh, a growth, home ownership, and business in and around the, the former World Trade Center? And it didn't come to me. And I thought to myself, how unbelievably humbling, right? And so again, this is an example. When we're talking about abolition, we need thought leadership. But guess what? We also need people who are in public policy. We also need economists. We also need people in microfinance. And by the way, it's not just abolishing prisons. There are towns in this country that are prison towns. The entire local economy, or at least a lot of it, is based on the incarceration of human beings. It is not right. And we have to move away from it, but we also have to create different systems and different economies for those towns. Same is true for police officers. We have to figure out a way for them to re-enter and reintegrate too. In addition to empathy, humility, I'd like to mention solidarity. Solidarity comes in many forms. Uh, one of the, I think, fundamental values of the movement is to center those who are most impacted. And so if somebody is directly impacted, give them space. Give them the opportunity to lead, to have a seat at the table, and tell their own story. And yet we know that can be exhausting. It can be exhausting, right? If you are a black person in this country and your community is being targeted like it is nearly every day, to also simultaneously be asked to constantly be the spark of change. And so solidarity is showing up for them. It's building alongside them. It's non-black students and other students going up to the Black Students Association at the school and saying, May 25th is around the corner. What can we do to support and help you? 
You know, one of the examples that I think is so profound is after the Unite the Right rally in 2017 in Charlottesville, there were two sister rallies that were planned in Tennessee. And the expectation, at least early, was that the Black Lives Matter chapter in Tennessee was going to organize a counter rally. And they put out this extraordinary statement where they said, you know, we're not going to organize the counter rally because it's white America who let these people in and it is the responsibility of white America to show them out. And during the Trump administration, we saw extraordinary examples of solidarity. One of my favorite was Japanese Americans outside the Supreme Court condemning the Muslim ban. Native communities showing up, around, out, showing up with Latinx organizers on the border because they know that borders are arbitrary. This month is AAPI Heritage Month. I'm giving a talk um, next week and I was you know, researching and, 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 and looking back at you know, some of the profound inter sort of racial solidarity between Asian communities and black communities. How many of you know that when Malcolm X died, the person holding his head on stage was an Asian American woman? See a couple of people nodding their heads. Anyone know the name of that person? Anyone know? Yuri Kochiyama. So there are wonderful historical examples of solidarity. And yet, think about the examples I just gave and think about what I didn't mention. Right? There's a glaring omission, and I'll take you to a talk that I gave at the University of Portland a couple years ago. It was a group of like 25 students, and I asked them, it was a, a course specifically on activism, what types of issues they were engaged in and what type of issues they were working on. And it was fascinating to me because they were all really important issues. And I said, do you know what's missing? And what do you think was missing? What is missing based on what I just shared? I didn't, I didn't mention that one, that's true. Others? Class, right? Now, there's no question there's overlap between class and a lot of the identity issues. Um, but solidarity is also class, and it's class struggle, and it's understanding the overlap between how different communities across racial lines, across religious lines, are similarly impacted um, by deprivation, um, um, and, and you, know, you can call it excess capitalism, whatever you, whatever you sort of want it to be, but knowing that class presents a real opportunity for solidarity as well. Forgiveness, right? So we've got empathy, we've got humility, we've got solidarity. Let's talk a little bit about forgiveness. Um, so much of the abolitionist case, um, so much about building a new and better future is understanding, recognizing, and acknowledging that we are better than our worst act. However, heinous and terrible it may be. And yet, do we actually practice that? Do we live that? I will tell you, I feel very grateful that I didn't come of age in a time of permanence. What do I mean by that? I mean that, you know, I understand now there's Instagram stories and they disappear. I understand Snapchat disappears, but as we know, nothing truly dis disappears. Um, and I feel lucky that I came of age um, when everything I said and, did, said and did didn't leave a digital footprint. And so what I mean is we have to have the ability to forgive. Now, there's a flip side of that, right? And the flip side of that is there can be no reconciliation without accountability. And lots of times people just want to get to the forgiveness front. And we can't do that because there has to be accountability. But it also means that if people have taken ownership, if they've taken accountability, then we have to be able to bring them in. What some people call calling in. You know, there is a Southern activist who actually believes that calling in will be the nonviolence of the 21st century, the nonviolence of the digital era. 
I'm not quite there, but there is something extraordinary to be calling in, and I will share you, uh, with you a very personal story. Um, it was actually just last summer I was at a retreat, and I was having a conversation with two people at a table, and I said a term, and one of the people at the table looked at me, and, and they, their sort of head sank. And I said, is everything okay? And she paused, and she said, please don't use that word. And I thought to myself, and then I realized that it was an ableist term. And I said, I was sorry. I said that I had learned something. And I really thanked her for the way that she handled the situation. And by virtue of handling the situation in that way, and we spoke about the term and I explained why I thought it was ableist. She's like, exactly. And I said, you know, I feel so awful because it is ableist. I won't repeat the term. But by virtue of that experience, by virtue of that calling in, I learned something. Her approach was reinforced. And here I am sharing it with you. And so sometimes you can call people in if you're only willing to sort of give them that chance. The last thing I will sort of emphasize is, is sort of what I call growth. Uh, maybe you can call it curiosity. And by that, I mean, in so many ways, it's sort of what I like to say, calling things by their true name. So let's go back to what I was saying about TikTok. I truly believe that democratization of media is a wonderful thing. And arguably the Arab uprisings of 2011 would not have been possible without the rise of social media. And yet we've also seen the flip side of it, right? You can arguably, you can make the argument that Brexit wouldn't have been possible without social media. Um, the genocide against, the, Rian, against the, the, the Rohingya in Myanmar was very much facilitated by Facebook. Um, I've called them and others have called them handmaidens to authoritarianism. These are the technology companies. And yet, I do fear that we are overly reliant on them. We are overly reliant on them for knowledge. We are overly reliant on them for substance. And so I will tell you, as I have sort of gone through movement and as I have come of age, and, and this may be difficult to hear and I, I, I welcome questions about it, but I see people throw around the word trauma. I see people throw around the word trigger. And it's not that there aren't things that are traumatic, but if everything is traumatic, then nothing is traumatic. If everything is triggering, then nothing is triggering. And guess what? There is a really, really critical difference between being uncomfortable, which is where a lot of learning happens, and being unsafe. And I see those terms being equated as well. And so as part of curiosity, as part of growth, I ask everyone to do their best to call things by their true name. Don't revert, resort to tropes, which is I think sometimes what these terms are. And to do your best to actually articulate what it is you are feeling, what it is you are experiencing, um, and move from there. I wanna leave plenty of time for questions and so I'm gonna end in just a couple minutes as I promised. But I'll end with what gives me sustenance and from what I understand and from what I know and from what I've read and from what I've experienced gives so many other sustenance who do this work every day today and, and those who came before me. And it's honestly and it's ultimately love. You know, there was a time when I used to do this work and I used to take myself very, very seriously. There's nothing wrong with taking yourself seriously. This is important work. 
But alongside and during that journey, what sustains you is joy. It's laughter. And it's love. Right? It's, it can be love for your dog. I love my dog. I could not have written my book, American Hate, without my dogs. Everyone who knows, knows they're in the acknowledgments of my book. One of them passed away some years ago. The other one is still with me, and I'll see her tomorrow. I came back from those trips meeting with survivors and being outside, just being in their company, being in their spirit, being in their spirit meant everything to me. Love of family, love of community, love of the environment. Make time for the people you love. Make time to do the things you love. Because it will sustain you, and fundamentally, it will also sustain the movement. Um, with that, I will go ahead and wrap up at 11.34, one minute before I planned, um, to see if folks have questions. Um, I'm capable of going on for a very long time. Um, but I won't do that. And if folks don't have questions, then I might share a few additional thoughts. Well, thank you very, very much. That was very moving. Thank you very much, Arjun. And as Arjun mentioned, we're going to open up to question and answer in just a second. I uh, just want to mention a thing or two, the usual thing or two. Uh, we do have plenty of room at the table for luncheon. If you'd care to join us, we're going to be in Great Hall today. We're not going to be in AGH. We're going to be in Great Hall. So that means we have more space. That means we have more space to join us. So if you are not RSVP'd and would like to join us, community members, uh, visitors, let me know afterwards, please. We'll have deliciously flavored chicken and deliciously flavored vegetarian options. Uh, so there's something for everybody. This is the last convocation, the last regular convocation for the year. I know. Thank you very much for all your support. And if, well, thank you all for, very much for the support. And now, if you enjoyed this convocation, I'm not going to say season, but uh, the program for this year, please let us know. If you didn't, please let us know. Get involved. Give us your ideas for speakers so that we can bring great speakers to Carleton College next year. Uh, that being said, it's time for Q&A. So, if you have a question, an answer, a comment, an experience, we're going to start right over here. Hi. Oh, hey. I'm Dia. Thank you. Great speech. Um, I agree with you on a number of points. So, I'm curious. You mentioned about empathy and, like, no one has asked you where you went to law school within, like, 10 years. So, I'm just curious to know your thought. What role does academia play? I'm always thinking what should be taught at home, what should be taught in the classroom, and if empathy and other things that are maybe not taught in the classroom is actually needed to make this change and do what needs to be done. Like, I just want to know, like, what are your thoughts? Like, what, what is the new philosophy? What's the job of the institution now? Um, so, I, you know, I generally don't have prepared remarks, and so sometimes the connections I know can be, sometimes they're very clear, sometimes they're clear to me and not necessarily to others. Um, so the point I was making about not being asked uh, for 10 years was really just this point, kind of trying to really emphasize the importance of skills and values, empathy being one. And so I do think empathy in and of its own sake is really important, and, and it's something that I think should be taught. Like, I think it's something that should be cultivated um, in youth. I think it's something that should be kind of reinforced throughout life and in college. In terms of the role of academia, you know, I, I will tell you, I... Um, I really worry about accessibility and affordability because if we're requiring students to pay exorbitant amounts of money, um, it's a form of gatekeeping and it's a form of exclusivity. And so I do think that we need to figure out how to better democratize education, how to make it more accessible. And I'm a huge supporter of community colleges. And so apart from the accessibility issue, I do think that there can be really vital thought leadership that comes from academia um, that can be generated by virtue of academic freedom. But I will also tell you that I think a lot of academia is too siloed. Uh, 
And I, you know, one of the revelations I had in my work, working with survivors of hate violence is, you know, there are books, there are treaties, there are people writing and talking about hate violence who've never spent time with survivors. And I'm not saying that being a survivor alone, right, gives you conclusive knowledge, but I think it gives you a really informed approach that should be considered. And so I think academia is, when at, is, is at its best when it's accessible, when it's democratic, and when it's working alongside other forms of knowledge, including community-based knowledge, um, organizational knowledge, local knowledge, and the like, and I don't think we have enough of that latter. And a lot of my work is trying to actually bridge that. Uh, thank you for your inspiring words. Uh, my name is Sean. I was curious a little bit about your point about faith as sort of a binder of social movements um, historically in order to give them like staying power. And you mentioned that that doesn't necessarily need to come from faith today. But I was curious about your take on sort of the, the role where we see the influence of religion maybe diminishing, but it's still present. And so it seems like having a movement that's linked by something that's sort of atheistic in nature, some, some non-faith-based linker won't be including everyone because a lot of people are still part of these faith-based communities. And whether you think that that poses a problem when you have sort of several different binding agents, almost like competing to create different communities and how those can be reframed to sort of help each other and work together. I mean, you know, here's the thing. I am. I'm not here to tell people what their anchors are. I'm not here to tell movement necessarily what their anchor needs to be. I just think that we need one. And I think that we don't have one. And part of what I'm trying to do is at the minimum get us to think about values um, that I think are common to secular humanism, that are common to lots of faiths, faiths that I think can provide that connective tissue. But some of the best solidarity work is interfaith, it's cross-faith. I mean, an example I love to give is um, in DC, I think when I want to say about 18 months ago, they passed, I believe it's called um, the, like the Harassment Prevention Act, the DC Harassment Prevention Act, and the coalition that came together to support that bill included sex workers, folks who were disabled, basically sex workers, folks who were disabled, trans people, and Muslim women. Because those four groups were disproportionately impacted by hate and harassment on the streets of DC. Right? That's a bill, that's a story, that's a coalition that every single person who's interested in building and movement needs to hear about. Because five years ago, and for those of you who were saying we've made progress, you're right on that front, right? When I asked that question early on and I saw a couple of folks nodding their head, that is progress. Because I can tell you five years ago, that coalition could not have come together. But because of the difficult work and coalition building that people and organizations are doing, they were able to come together and spearhead that, that bill. So I think faith can be an anchor. Um, but, but it ultimately doesn't have to be. Uh, you had mentioned before that there was a fine line between this movement and moment uh, scenarios, and I just wondered how, how you understand the frustration when it doesn't really become a movement and it seems to be fleeting away and all that frustration that comes with it and disappointment with the actual effects that uh, it had just like on the protesters and the people who want to change and still feel restless about their impact. Um, could you just rephrase it a little bit? Yeah. Uh, how do you deal with that frustration okay. from uh, these big moments that gather a lot of people yeah. but uh, still yeah. leave a lot of... You no, know, so it's a really good question and partly by speaking to you today in the way that I am. 
this itself is a form of advocacy. This itself is a form of protest, right? This is a, this is a form of building. Um, and you know, they, it, I absolutely have moments of frustration and those who know me well know I have those moments. And you know, you, you can't suppress them. You have to manage them. And continue to just think about what anchors you, right? And so I, I make it a point, like I make time for the things I love, for the places I love, for the people I love. And, you know, that, that keeps me grounded. Hi, um, I'm a Carlton parent. I'm grateful to my daughter for bringing me to see you today. Um, when I go home, I will return to the great state of New Hampshire. And I would welcome your advice. Um, as we know, CNN had that town meeting the other night with Donald Trump, sorry. Um, and to me, the news, the value of that news was the audience, the people so, so shockingly lacking in empathy, um, their laughter, their scorn. And these are my neighbors. Um, this is a state where 51% of the population voted for Joe Biden and 49% didn't. And when I think about um, relating to my neighbors and really hoping, trying to find the empathy within them and perhaps the faith within them, whatever it is, the humility, the forgiveness, um, what, what's your strategy for, for people who really believe that our fellow citizens can do better? So I, just so you know, I, I don't normally, am, I'm not normally behind podiums. Normally I'm the type of person who kind of has like a mic here and I stroll and that's why I'm like kind of doing a little bit of a shuffle. Um, it's really hard work and there's good and bad news. Um, the good news is that there's really hard work. It's really hard work. There's a lot of it to be done and so you can figure out what you want to do. Um, you know, years ago I heard a TED talk and it was by an African American gentleman and literally by the end of the talk, he has six Ku Klux Klan robes on the stage. And each of those robes represents an individual who gave up those robes, who gave up those beliefs after spending time talking with him in dialogue, right? Kudos, props to him, amazing work, I can't do that. That's not the work that I wanna do. In terms of the work that I can do and the work that you may be willing and able to do, by virtue of your identity, you are going to have access to spaces that I won't. You are going to have access honestly to, in some cases, less bias in a way that I don't, just simply by the way people will judge me on the basis of my physical appearance. And so I think thinking about those spaces, thinking about those audiences, and this is where it becomes harder. Um, we actually know now from social scientists um, who've actually studied persuasion that liberals tend to respond to shaming, meaning when you call them out, they're more likely to change their views. Republicans are the opposite. When you shame them, they're more likely to become entrenched. So what does that mean? Everyone has to make their own determination, right? Does that mean that you, it's, it's a race to the bottom? Does that mean we continue to shame them? Or does that mean that we start with what we have in common and try to build from there, knowing your capacity, knowing your limitations, knowing that everybody has their own patience level. And again, it's hard work. One of the studies I love to cite is, um, there's a research group I do some work with, and they did a survey several years ago, and they asked, question number one was, do you think the United States people should be able to worship freely? Yes, absolutely. Two, do you think people should be judged on account of their faith? No, of course not. This is the United States. Question four was, do you think we should have an increased police presence outside mosques? Yes, we should. Right? Question four is not consistent with your answer in question two, and yet question one and two had 90% consensus, and question four had half of the respondents said, yeah, you should have additional police presence outside mosques. And so when you introduce these communities, when you introduce these variables, there's a whole set of biases, stereotypes that arise. 
And, and I think you're right, right? Like it's also hard to have individual conversations. That's why these have to be systemic, system-wide solutions. You can have individual conversations, but if you revert back to your echo chamber on Twitter, your echo chamber on, on, on the news, it's hard to break away from it. And so I, I also personally believe that we're living in this moment of, like there is a lot of cognitive harm and dissonance that's been caused by like the punditocracy that's been caused honestly, like, I mean, I don't, I, I don't watch the interview, but I think it's pretty clear. CNN had that interview because in part their ratings are awful, right? I mean, and, and, and they did it in part because like, you know, like I, I, I think they want to improve their ratings and they can couch it in a different way. But you know, the fact that like they're dependent, right? On, on some of this fear mongering they're dependent um, on some of this, you know, ideological polarization itself is so troubling. And so rethinking, you know, the, the, the business models of these companies and back to what you were saying, it's just, it's hard. It's difficult individual work. It's starting with what you have in common. It's thinking about the places that you have access to um, or your child has access to that maybe I and others don't. Um, and also remember that like, we're almost always stronger in groups. And so find a group of people who think alongside you, find a group of people um, 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 who think, you know, similarly to you, not just because that you may be able to be a more powerful uh, persuasive force, but also because you need community too, right? If you're gonna do that work, it's gonna be hard, it can be taxing, and so you need that support as well. I think we can squeak in one more question, okay. if that's okay with you, all right. Uh, yeah, my question, uh, just based on all the different sort of components of a movement that you've shared with us today, it seems to me like trust is sort of an essential ingredient to all of those. Uh, based on your experience, what are some effective ways to build or maybe in some cases rebuild trust to help move forward a movement? You know, it's, it's, a, really, it's a really good point. Um, and I think it's sort of, underlies so many of the values that I was sharing. Empathy, right? Um, humility, solidarity, forgiveness. And so I think, yeah, I think it's really important um, in terms of how we rebuild active listening, building real genuine connection. Like I, I can tell you, I've just found that shaming often doesn't work. You know, I, you know, I, we don't have time I, I, and I don't wanna, I, I don't wanna violate this person's privacy, but you know, my book is being made into a film, American Hate's being made into a film and I'm co-directing it and we'll be in Buffalo uh, next week. Um, Buffalo was where that terrible shooting happened at the Walmart, and we'll be in, you know, Colorado Springs, which is where the Club, Club Q, you know, uh, tragedy happened as well. And you know, sometimes I'm meeting people during this this process and during this work, who are of a very different political persuasion or upstanders who intervened, um, who don't share my political leanings, and yet sometimes after speaking to them for 20 minutes. We have a common foundation, and it's not because I'm judging their politics, it's because I'm just listening to them. I'm empathizing with them. I'm, I'm trying to also understand that like, they've had struggles too. You know, I was telling the, you know, the, the driver, um, Kurt, who, who picked me up yesterday, he's a great guy. Um, at the last time I was in Minnesota, I was on a panel, it had escaped me with um, Keith Ellison, Right, he's the attorney general. And this was in Minneapolis, and this was, I have to look back on, it was maybe like seven, eight months ago. And it's a, it was a public panel, so I think it's fine for me to say it. Yeah, but he said something really profound in that panel, and he said, in Minneapolis and in this state, white people are allowed to have problems too. And that shouldn't be a political statement, um, but sometimes it is. And I, I just, there are a lot of people, right, who, and, and I'm not equating in any form or shape, 
the racial injustices that have been suffered and experienced by black folks in this country, right? One of the founding mottos of Black Lives Matter is when black folks are free, we will all be free. And I think that is beautiful and I think that is one of the foundations, if not the foundation of racial justice organizing and 21st century movement building. Um, but guess what? I also think there's plenty of empathy to go around. And I think there's also lots of suffering in this country. And so I'm interested in trust. I'm interested in empathy. I'm interested in rebuilding. And I'm interested in building real solidarity across racial lines, across interfaith lines, where we can just build a country and, and, and a community that, that's, that's in better service of us all. And on that wonderful note, thank you very much, Arjun. Thank you very much for being here. That concludes convocation for today and basically for this academic year. Thank you. <laughs>